Hey everybody, it's KP, a creator, community builder, and the program director of OnDeck's No Code Fellowship. And this is Building Public Podcast, where I interview ambitious founders and creators to share their worldviews, best practices, and actionable advice on the topic of building in public. Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to the second episode of Building in Public podcast. I am your host, KP. And today I have with me an incredible duo. Um, most, both of them definitely don't yeah. need introduction in, in the, in the building public space, but they are um, Paul Kubian, uh, who is the founder at uh, Copy.ai, and Blake Amal, who is now the CMO at Copy.ai. So, copycats, welcome. Thank you, KB. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having Excellent. us. I, um, for the folks you know who are listening to this podcast for the first time, um, building public is, of course, you know, near and dear to my heart, and it 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 goes back to two, three years ago when I was first on Twitter in this Twitter universe and I had no followers and I was swimming. I felt like in a sea of noise and like, you know, a lot of, lot, lot of uh, random tweets and just discovered this beautiful signal where if you put out stuff consistently and, you know, rally people who believed in the same beliefs around, around the problem you want to solve, um, you will actually be able to build a terrific community. And I've seen this work in a couple places. You know, of course, um, we talked to Morning Bruce CEO earlier uh, in the podcast, and you know, we're going to talk to a few more. But one of my favorite observations in the last maybe twelve months has been watching Paul, you know, execute this playbook uh, to almost great perfection. And of course, <laughs> uh, uh, I know you'll, you'll laugh, right. but but he's done a terrific job as as taken on this building public mantra and put put, put his own spin on it. And uh, I want to address actually a little bit around like where did he find inspiration um, before getting started with building in public? Because it was not very obvious six months ago. So, Paul, tell us. How yeah, you Elon Musk uh, does it and he has a ton of followers and can raise any amount of money he wants and build any company he wants and rate and attract any talent he wants. Love it. I mean, so that was it. It's that it was literally that clear. And then the second case study was Donald Trump. Donald Trump had like 90 million followers and got elected president because there was no filter between him and the people he was trying to reach. So it was a very one-on-one -on -one direct communication, but at scale and it was real time. So like, I think all of those factors kind of point to the same thing, which is Twitter can be this insanely high leverage point to build a real audience and, and build like some, something that's super powerful that has a really long, long-term advantage to it. I'll, I'll uh, popcorn the same question over to you, Blake. When did you discover the magic of building in public? For me, it was, it was more learning in public for a really, really long time. So I've been creating content uh, starting mostly on LinkedIn back when it wasn't so boring and platitudinal. <laughs> it's, it's worse than it's ever been right now. But uh, like I, I was creating content before it was actually acceptable to do it when it was still like a recruiting resume website. I was making content because I was a crazy person and thought that that would work and it did. So I was learning in public and sharing what I was learning along the way. I really didn't become more of like a maker and build in public until the past year or so. I've, I've been doing side projects forever, 
mostly that looked like consulting. But then recently I just like, I want to put some products together. I want to try my hand at some digital products, see what I can do and just scrap together this really janky tech stack of like Gumroad and, uh, you know, free website and whatever. And it worked. It worked really well. Uh, it wasn't like massive, but it did work. And, and so I started seeing the value of just putting that out there too, not just sharing what I was learning, but sharing what I was learning and doing. And then just like creating this flywheel of content through that. And that's, that pretty much led me to uh, getting more active on Twitter and the rest is history. Love that. Well, well, the rest, rest is not history. I can still, <laughs> I can still really flame out here. So let's. <laughs> so actually, I, I want to get to that segment where you, um, you're now CMO at at Copy, and um, well, actually, for the for the for the listeners and the, for the viewers, uh, Paul, do you want to quickly summarize what Copy.ai does? Sure. So it's an AI copywriting app, and we use uh, an AI platform called GPT three, which is the world's most powerful. AI model for language generation. And that was that was launched <clears throat> in summer of this year. And since I had used GPT-2, I was expecting three to be really good. And so the first people that really saw GPT-3 were on Twitter because that's where you, that's the fastest place to find like demos and early beta use cases. And so it was immediately in my timeline. I immediately recognized the power of it and, um, thought, okay, well, this is, this has got to be the next big thing. And I became the unofficial GPT-3 hype man on Twitter. It and, is. And, and because I was doing investing, I was like trying to find anyone building on it. Like, what are the big things going to be um, and trying to invest in those things. And at the same time, trying to get access as fast as possible, which we did. Uh, my co-founder, Chris Liu and I, and then we just started pumping out MVPs and like launching them on Twitter. So if you don't have money, uh, you can't really run ads, right? So Twitter is the best platform for generating the finding your first users. And what we realized very quickly was each time we launched anything, we would get more followers, which would give us more users for, <laughs> the next time we launched. There was, so, there was the iteration domino effect that, that occurs. Yes. And then there's content that it's just like spewing out of these side projects. People want to know everything about it. Your first dollar of revenue, your second dollar of revenue. Like, what are you thinking about doing? A feature request, like a, a customer testimonial. All of that is content that people are generally curious about. So when you start posting it, you're basically sharing your journey with people, you know, that are on Twitter. So at first they're going to be like, dude, everybody's really encouraging and happy for you. And this is something I've noticed since the summer, a tweet from someone that says, just made my first dollar of revenue. I will, I'm always liking and retweeting that, but those have gone from getting like 15 likes, maybe 30 likes to getting like 600, 700, 800 likes on it. And so a big part of, of that, of my, like the thing I wanna do with Twitter is to basically reinforce that as a positive thing. Yeah. So, because I know everybody's wants to imitate success and we're all looking to see who's growing and whatever, but that honestly, that one tweet, I just made my first dollar of revenue will inspire more people to build. Right. And we're, I'm all about inspiring people to build more. I think one, one theme that sort of um, consistently shows up in your feed and of course, even in Blake's too, is how much you both cheer on the sidelines for others 
and and their micro wins and small wins, right? Because you know, I think one of the um, harshest things that I've seen in the last 10, 15 years is is how founder culture tends to be celebrating the hustle, like the hours I worked or this or that or this, and <laughs> there's actually not enough gratitude that goes into small wins. So, like someone like you co-signing on some maker who made like a dollar, you know, by selling a product on Gumroad, or maybe they got their first SaaS customer, actually means the world to that maker or a founder, right? And I think it's one theme that I've seen both of you do really well, and it speaks to sort of like the ethos of building in public, you know, for cheering in public as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because that was me in August. I had $3 a month. In recurring revenue, yeah. you know, yeah. there we go. <laughs> the next day I had, we got another subscriber. We had $6 a month in recurring there revenue. And I posted a tweet, like growing a hundred percent day over day <laughs> with all the fire emojis. Right. <laughs> and then somebody in the comments does the math. He's like, dude, if you grow a hundred percent day over day for the next 30 days, you're going to be like this huge right. company. And I was like, right. I was like, let's plan on it. Right. <laughs> let's plan on it. So that's where I, that's like my that's the neighborhood I'm coming from. So people that were following me back then, I might've had, let's see, at that point, maybe like 1500 followers, um, you know, 10 X that everybody that starts following you after that, they missed that journey. They don't realize it. Right. So I, I you know, I, mm-hmm. I try to let people know, Hey, look, when, when you have a startup that does strike something that people want, you can grow extremely fast. So in, less than five months, we're at 60,000 a month in revenue. Right. And MRR. And MRR, yeah. Uh, and re- yeah, recurring revenue. This is a huge, it's a huge jump, right? So how did you go from taglines.ai, which does one, one tool, which I think we ended up getting to like 300 a month in MRR, which is maybe 20, 20 or 30 paying customers. How do you go from there and build the next thing with what you learned from that? So that's all in my timeline. Which is fantastic because right. it's like my history, my log. Like right. this is what we did. Moving to like the part about CMO, and actually, I'm curious. Before you announced that you were hiring on Twitter, uh, Paul, what was going in your mind about, given how built in public you are, how like the company was formed around that culture, what was going on in your mind about what your first hire would look like and what you were looking from that person? Yeah. So we, uh, you know, Chris and I. Before, before we even started building, we have our own understanding of how seed stage companies work. And because you're investors, right? Yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, we're angel investors. So the first one is, does this company have traction or not? And it was our viewpoint that most people should not quit their day job until they hit traction with something because it's so hard to do. The second viewpoint was that a real MVP, given all the tech that we have access to now, shouldn't take more than a, a week or maybe a few weeks to get an actual MVP out the door. So we use that to really rapidly build, launch, and, and iterate. So we knew, okay, we're not quitting like our dream jobs unless we get serious traction in something. And we, right. and my hope was that the traction would be a strong enough signal that it was a no-brainer. Right. It's not riding the fence like, oh, we got to, you know, three months in and we're at 800 a month in revenue. Right. It's like we have a little bit of traction, but it's unclear that it's going to it's going to be very easy to to scale this. So. Once we um, hit traction and we knew, okay, 
time time to like to go full time on this. The second thing we knew was that the people you want to hire won't work for you until you have like a serious amount of traction. Right. Not just like three thousand a month in revenue. Like you're not. I can't get Blake. I can't get Blake on board. Right. Blake's got a million offers. So how am I going to get the caliber of talent I'm going to need to actually execute the real vision? And the the uh, the game plan was, Chris, you and me, we're going to take this as far as and as hard as we can on our own. Right. We're going to build in public. We're going to hope that we can actually recruit talent off this build in public playbook, which is people can see us building and they get interested. And maybe they get aligned with the vision and the mission. So maybe either they reach out to us or when we reach out to them, they've already, they already know who we are. So that was the playbook. Um, so our, I think Blake came on, we, we literally hit like 50,000 a month, uh, a day or two before he joined. That is atypical for startups. <laughs> okay. But the nice thing is when you, if you do find mega traction, um, you hope that, that you have a game plan that's going to work. So the problem is you're, you're now late to building the team out. So we're like four months behind building a team, but the team we have, we're hoping is the right team that we need to actually take it to the next level. Right. What were some qualities that you saw in Blake or his profile and his playbooks that made you go, okay, that's my CMO. Bring it on. I'm not a big fan of resumes. So for a marketer, I was looking for, since we're totally like marketing focused as a platform, right. we're extremely heavily focused on organic marketing tools, Right. which means that the marketer you want to bring on board needs to understand organic channels. They need to understand how to build an audience. They need, they need to be data-driven, like, hey, what's working, what's not working? <laughs> and then they need... Like uh, they need hopefully have built side projects. So they have like this creative energy that is doesn't like the if they're working at a company that doesn't stop them from wanting to pursue these passion things because that that's a core focus of our tools. And then if they're generating content, like how literally how much content are they able to generate? And then I saw Blake. I'm like, oh, this is the guy. <laughs> so you almost saw him before he applied and it was no it's like the same like he showed up in uh didn't really in apply. Wits, I mean, he showed up in wits thread but yeah and uh the bad unicorn founder Whit anderson and uh Whit and I, Whit. yeah wits awesome uh atl and um i was like blake who's this blake guy I look at his profile for like six seconds i'm like oh this this is this is who we want instant dm <laughs> yeah. you know just like it took it from there just like it was, we had a funny dm thread going on like like yeah you need help with something i'm like i need a podcast uh i need my own podcast so i can help you set that up whatever and then i was like and also i need a 90 page growth plan can you help with that <laughs> he's like yeah i can help with that <laughs> Just as a joke. So it was like instantly I for I knew that he has this output. I knew that 
Um, not only does he have followers, because a lot of marketers on Twitter, they buy followers, but he had real engagement on his tweets. And then the, just from like personality, you know, if you're, if you're a marketer, you're, you become like a core voice of the company. Right. You know, is this somebody that you want representing your company? And uh, Blake's awesome. Blake's like incredibly nice, humble, and helpful. And like this building in public thing, like you said, it's not just about you're, you know, just pumping out promotional content, but really, are you actually cheerleading other people? Are you helping other people? And, and uh, you know, I'd see threads like where people just offer help. So like, hey, reply if you need help with something and I'll, I'll help you back. Like those are core values and virtues right. for us. So from your, from your vantage point, Blake, what um, made this decision um, inevitable for you to join copy? And from, from also from your, I'm assuming long-term passion to build in public, like what, how did these two worlds collide and what made it inevitable? Just the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, no. Wait, I thought Paul was paying in Bitcoin, but <laughs> no, no, he, he no, no, in Doge. Yeah, Doge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so yeah. So like honestly, when I was looking at it, I've I've mentioned this to Paul a billion times, but the fact that I'd never been able to work on a work at a company where I actually use the tool was huge. I've worked in really boring industries, worked at agencies and been in a lot of different industries, none of which I would actually use any of their stuff. And that's a big thing for a marketer to be able to be your own customer is huge. Being able to like go into the tool and automatically identify opportunities for growth there, but at the same time, get value out of the tool, like simultaneously never had that before. So that was a really big selling point beyond that. Like it's real. It was really clear that my skill set, personality, all that good stuff would fit really well with this company. And so, the more that I researched, the more I, ta I talked with Paul, um, it, it just became clear. Like, yes, this is a good fit. And I wasn't actively looking to leave my other job until I really started talking with Paul, and then I was actively looking to leave my job. Right? Like, because I realized that even though I had it good where I was, I was playing it safe at a company where I just would never get my hands on the tool. I didn't get to work with tons of people all the time. Cause like I was managing a remote team, but it was just really, there wasn't a lot going on. It was a very traditional company. And so the idea that I could take something over, inject my voice and personality into it, really make a difference and be able to attribute like, because like marketing up until that point was word of mouth Twitter. Right. So like there's ground zero right there. Everything that's done above that, I can directly contribute to. And that was huge for me. Um, also, just the fact that they had insurance and they were a startup was, was a really, really good selling point because I was really <laughs> nervous that we weren't going to have insurance. And if you know anything about paying for insurance outside of your employer, it's like insanely expensive. Right. So that was like the final little puzzle piece to fall in. And, and then from there, it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm joining. I'm doing this thing. I love that. So, so now that... Paul, um, you picked your first hire in public. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be the hiring playbook at Copy? Yeah, so we hired our second uh, person, Zach Lee. Oh. He, he built in public. Wow. So his, uh, Win Kwai is his, his handle, but he, um, he built a company or a side project called Potion. There are two potions. His was one of them, and he ended up selling it. But he had been following me since we launched. 
And uh, he said I had inspired him to build that project, which he ended up selling. <laughs> so in, in that time period, you know, that was like, that was basically the story. And um, I think Chris, Chris and he connected and then there was already an energy. So like this is, especially in remote environment, you cannot right. like remote first company. How do you convey energy like that? Right. There's no vibe in an office. So you need something to, to like replicate that and take it to the next level. Cause I've got like a family and kids, you know, living in the other rooms, my house, it's not the right, it's not the same vibe, right. That you might get like being in a cramped office with your first hires and it's totally different. So without that, how do you build it? How do you actually build a culture and onboard, you know, consistently so that everybody's excited about the project and, and waking up in the morning. And so, so that's something that's super important. So when um, I, I mean, of course, I was following parts, bits and parts of the story. One of my favorite, again, another um, moments that I thought I stopped scrolling, which is a pretty big deal, right? Like getting people to stop <laughs> scrolling uh, is when you mentioned something around onboarding and you were looking, you know, you're looking for advice and guidance around how to onboard in a remote first, you know, setup. And I thought that was pretty vulnerable, you know, for a founder to come out and, and just say, okay, I need some guidance and help um, in, in onboarding. Because, you know, people, you know, people who don't, don't live in the building public camp are very defensive about their strengths and weaknesses and things they know, things they don't know. And I think, Paul, one thing that's refreshing, uh, the way you lead uh, copy or, you know, uh, the, the new wave of leaders is, in my view, is how vulnerable and open they are in sharing, hey, I don't know what the heck I'm doing here, so help me out. What, what was your sort of genesis behind that tweet? And did, does it mean something to you or you just did it? I literally don't know what I'm doing, man. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> he should be the one-line zinger of, of this episode. Copy AI founder bears all. <laughs> Look, I don't I got know what no I'm good. doing. I, I swear to you, I don't have a clue. And I, I hear people all the time talking about how they have imposter syndrome. I'm like, everybody can't, if everybody has imposter syndrome, then we just need to cut the crap. <laughs> right? Right. Like, okay, if you have this weakness, how are you going to fix it? Well, you need to ask somebody for help. Twitter is like literally, I don't know, 300 million people that are scrolling their feed in order to find a place to actually say something that adds value. Right. So now any question I have, any problem, it's a tweet. And the answer is there in seconds. <laughs> right. Well, so I'll- It's I'll a share. superpower. It's it a is. total superpower. I'll share a personal uh, uh, anecdote on that. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure if you guys saw, but my, my wife asked me, um, okay, I, I need some book recommendations, like dad book recommendations or parent, parent book recommendations um, that you can ask your friends. And I'm like, what do you mean? I have no friends. I mean, I have friends, but what? I will just ask Twitter. They always tell me. And yes. she did not believe it, but I'm, I just tweeted out and we had 65 books recommended, 65. So there's a whole yeah. giant shelf in the next room, the baby nursery filled oh, with all the books. And she, it blew her mind. And she was like, I can't believe you had so many dad friends. And I think the answer is really not like that you have dad friends or not. It's really about like how Twitter's algorithm works in a way that it surfaces your content and tweets to the people who tweet about that topic all the time, right? So, 
And then there's also, of course, a community around you. So why not tap into it? Um, right. That was one of my recent favorite memories. I was like, wow, that, that's the power of Twitter, not just in tech, beyond. Um, yes. Yeah. And so that that's exactly right. So the, Twitter is a community you build around yourself. So if you tweet about politics, then you're going to get people that are have certain expectations. Right. They're coming to you. They're going to, that's going to influence what they're tweeting about. So I've heard time and time again, Hey, uh, Twitter's great until you hit 10,000 followers. Right. And then it just devolves. Right. I've hit 15.6 K. It's still amazing. Like I'm very focused on the content I'm putting out right. there. Right. I don't want this. I don't want to have a hot take yeah. just to generate interest or likes or whatever. I have no interest in that at all. I feel like that ruins the experience of that community for a lot of people. Right. Like it may Paul, give you look, quick Paul, attention. Yeah. yeah. Paul Graham, right? Brilliant mind, has a million followers. I would never trade his follower base for mine, ever, despite the fact that he's got a million. Because I look at what people tweet at him and I'm like, I don't ever want this to happen to me <laughs> right. in my life. Right. Right. He could be an influencer, but man, the amount of like problems and negativity that he attracts is off the charts. Right. And I'm like, why? Why do this to yourself? I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, uh, it's just, it seems to me you just want to be Paul Y and not Paul G. <laughs> so yeah, Paul I mean, look, not everybody's got the same things that they want out of it. But in my head, in my megalomaniac head, I have this impression that this community will continue to grow. Yeah. Like we'll get, I'm at 15K. I don't care about followers. You'll never hear me, see me tweet about how many followers I have or got. That just doesn't happen because I don't care what the number is. I care about the quality. So if you, the thing that I'm thinking about, and you're helping to, to make this happen, and, and Blake is too, is if you had 100,000 people that want to be at the edge of tech right. in real time in a community where everyone's supportive, yet when something gets launched, like take a ma any make private maker communities, it's great for support, which we have in Twitter anyway. Right. But what they never have is when you launch, mass, like it could be a massive success. You know, right. A million people could see this project. Right. It just doesn't happen. Right. So then they flip back and go to Product Hunt or they go to Hacker News. You know, People that launch on Product Hunt that already have even a tiny Twitter following will get four times as much traffic yes. from Twitter than they do the Product Hunt launch, Yeah, which means... Twitter is the community. So <laughs> this is something like you have to go all in on one. I went all in on Twitter is very, um, very purposefully. So, like, and are, so are you, um, Blake, are you taking notes of how many times he's saying Twitter is a community? Cause I think every time he says that we should take a shot or something. Do um, it. <laughs> no, hey. We'd be drunk before the interview. No, we, not, we don't, none of us drink, man. <laughs> we don't drink. We're don't here. Drink, we're here to bring the future to people, to keep it optimistic, to, to create a can do attitude. My feeling with Elon Musk is that while he's doing these awesome things, I don't feel like enough people are inspired to actually try it because they think what he's doing is impossible. Right. Right. It's like now, several orders of magnitude above. Yeah. I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not Albert Einstein. You know, like that's, that's the thought. Whereas me, I'm trying to break it down. I'm like, this guy is a regular guy. Like how, 
how does he construct his blueprint and roadmap and strategy so that he's able to pull off impossible stuff? Because if you can learn from him on how he did that, you can pull off impossible stuff. And um, yeah, so those lessons have not been lost on me and we continue no, no. To, to use them. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, so that leads me to, to another segment, which is um, the, the notion of, is it marketing or is it sales? So Blake, this is probably more relevant to you. Like, how do you view building public? Do you think is it more marketing or is it more sales? Um, how do you view uh, the, the art of building public? Um, yeah, it's um, the, the correct answer is that it's everything when you do it correctly. It's nothing when you do it incorrectly. Really? Um, so that's, that's the same with any marketing tactic. Like it will result in nothing if you do it really bad. If, if you do it well and build relationships, it will drive the results that you're looking for. And so when you're building in public, yeah, up front, like the, the initial thing is it looks like marketing, right? It looks like, because inherently, if you're building in public the right way, you're not just always pushing some call to action. You don't look at what, what Paul's posting and you, you don't think like every freaking day, he's just pushing me to sign up for copy.ai. Like, of course he wants people to do that, right? What he's sharing though, is here's where we're at as a company. Here's what we're learning. Here's what I'm learning. Here's what you could try out. Here's me trying stuff out, either looking like a fool or looking like a success along the way. Like he's showing the whole gamut of everything. So yeah, building public can lead to sales really effectively, but not because you're just trying to push something. It's more because people start trusting your story. They start trusting you as a person, which leads them to trust the company, which leads them to want to use the tool that the company offers. It's a really simple funnel that works and you don't have to explicitly just guide people there. Like people aren't that dumb. They right. know, they know what, what's expected. Like they know Paul is the CEO of copy AI. They kind of understand what action he would like them to take over right. time. Right. But the way that the way that we talk about it, it's not, Hey, you should join. It's more right. like, Hey, here's, here's some cool stories. Here's, here's stuff you could try out. I'm here to give you free knowledge. This is what we're learning. You don't have to make this mistake yourself. We're throwing all this stuff at them. And then they trust the person, then they trust the company. And this is why like people like Dave Gerhardt have done really well over their careers. Uh, love him, hate him, whatever. He makes a podcast bearing out all the secrets of him. And like, and he used to have David cancel the CEO of Drift, yeah, Drift. on the podcast all the time too. And just like get really specific with stuff. Right. And then people liked Drift as a brand a lot more, not so surprisingly than, than some of these other chatbots because they knew them and they knew right. the people behind them. So it, it really becomes important when you're building in public, especially behind a brand that you attach the brand to people, which lets you tell stories and weaves them through this tapestry of eventually becoming sales. But it's, it's a lot more nuanced than the typical promotion culture that we've been living in. Right. And, and it also ties into... Um what we were trying to say earlier too, is that it's not always about you, right? When you build in public, yes, you may share an update, but that doesn't have to be always about like your product or, um, you know, the number of signups you got that day. It could be about the problem you're solving, you know, a customer quote, a customer story, a customer win. You know, I see you guys do that all the time. Like, you know, like pick someone who built a funny, crazy thing with copy.ai and then they highlight them. Yeah. Right. And, um, and those are the things that resonate, you know? Um, okay, so if we don't have any comment on that, uh, I actually want to- I have to a comment. Go on. Finish. I don't like that question. 
I'm going to edit that part out of this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, is it, well, look, because I get at this is an important topic. Yeah. Because I get asked, you know, and I, and I, I just see other makers, you know, not complaining, but just like not, not happy about the tweets that I make. Um, saying basically, hey, just posting your MRR numbers isn't really building public. I think that my, the big thing I don't want people to miss is that when you look at social media in general, there are very few spots where people are, are trying to be open about, you know, how to build a company. Right. I think that market for people who are interested in that is insanely big, millions and millions of people. So when you build in public, if you go the, I'm going to go like, it's just sales route. I mean, that's every corporate Twitter handle is a sales right. route, CTA. Right. They get zero engagement. So no one really cares. So what you have to realize, the first thing you realize is this is people. This is not followers. This is a person, right? So once you realize it's a person, you just have to like literally be a human yeah right write your tweet like you're talking to a human being yeah. who has you know might be interested or might not be get their attention and like explain what what this post is about and what they should think about it so right. so for most people like that will follow me they'll come in through like an mrr tweet it's basically the top of funnel like hey who's this guy growing this company what is the company well, in the tweet, I don't even put our company name in there, <laughs> right? So it's not a, I'm not promoting the company. I'm yeah. just saying, hey, I'm doing something that's kind of interesting and people happen to like this, the fact that they can see this happen in real time. Right. And people then want to like DM me, hey, how do, like, do you have any tips for building in public? I said, check out my Twitter timeline. <laughs> it's all there, <laughs> right? It's all done, laid out for you there. Yeah, it's all laid out. Like I yeah. never delete a tweet. So. Right. So I think I, I'll say one last thing. Yeah, yeah. The whole point of the social media network is to surface the important things people are doing and like the vision and like, how do you turn something like this into a movement? Right. Well, the way you would do it is you have a few companies that do it and become really successful being very open. So there are a number of venture back companies that are built that way. And, um, and then you continue to just like, layer it on and and i think a lot of those companies they tend to be they grow and be, like become more insular about how much they share yeah you know where it's like okay we're not interacting as much because we have this other thing to do so the hard part for me is like what's the right balance because what we do want to do is still foster as much as we can in that community without like spending too much time right on twitter I'm sure you get that, you get asked that question all the time too, right? Like, uh, Paul, what are you doing? How are you being the CEO of a company when all you're doing is spending time on Twitter? But people miss the entire point. It, it's it's a lot of being the CEO of a company. So much of it is actually building the narrative, yeah. a story, a movement for folks to rally around, including investors, including future hires like Blake, including your potential customers. You know, and it's not yes. trying to close it on day one. You know, and um, so I'm sure you get you get asked that all the time because people ask me that all the time. And I'm like, you're not getting it. That's not the point. It, it's everything. It's how you reach anyone. Yeah. Like um, you, you ask them. So, OK, how are you going to reach? How are you going to find a um, how are you going to recruit someone? They're like, oh, well, we'll post a job of, of posting. We'll post that on LinkedIn, Indeed, AngelList, 
something or it's on our website. We hope someone clicks on it and like actually applies, right? First question we're going to get in the interview is like, okay, how much is this going to pay? Right. And what, what, what percentage of those applicants are going to be a good fit? Like one in 10. So how much, how many resources at the company level are you allocating to actually promote these openings and then to review them? And like KP, I just don't have time, man. Yeah. Like I got to build an awesome team. Blake quit his job the day, like I gave him an offer. It was like three days. You know, our, our second hire, we talked to him the next day he had an offer and accepted and quit the next day. Okay. Wow. That's a great uh, customer. Yeah. Hire three we made accepts the offer on Monday starts tomorrow. Like there's power in, in the vision and like, understanding the company you're going to join. And these are, these are really big decisions for people. These are life-changing decisions, right? right? Career-changing decisions. So how do you, this other way, the, the normal way people do it, I don't think it's sustainable. And when I look back on it, I'm like, maybe that's why so many people are unsatisfied with the work is they don't, they didn't get the first part, right? Which is, am I aligned with the mission this company is on? Right. Not just like, okay, am I going to get this title and then I can advance or, and then once I have that, then I can quit. I don't, you don't want your new hire to be like, all right, great. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to work here for three years and then I'm quitting, you know, (laughs) and doing my next thing. You want them to be excited, you know, for the long run, you know, ideally. I think so. So, Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to be uh, switching over now to the audience Q&A. We had, of course, uh, some questions from tweets and from Twitter. So I'm going to you know, uh, pop them up here on my screen and start asking them. Uh, this one comes from Reza. Um, question for Blake. Ask the first marketing hire at an early, early stage startup, what's your framework for defining and prioritizing marketing programs? Yeah, so uh, establish marketing programs. <laughs> that's, that's the framework. Establish marketing programs. <laughs> yeah, step one. Step yeah, one. so we, honestly, it, it was coming in, identifying what's absolutely crucial, but isn't there. And then the rest of like the cherry on top ideas come later, right? Paul and I have had meetings where we just have a thousand and one ideas, so many cool things we could do. There's so many ways you could take this technology and the marketing for the technology, all that good stuff. When you boil it down though, you have to be able to focus on a couple of things that actually move the needle upfront. So for us, obviously there's, there's some infrastructure stuff happening, like hiring people that there are clear gaps with uh, community or for content creation or for uh, marketing operations, whatever it is for whatever company. Um, there are going to be gaps that are readily apparent and building out a team is important because I can't do everything, um, nor do I want to do everything all at once. Um, there's, there's some structural stuff like setting up, <laughs> we use Notion. So setting up all the documentation you need for people to come on board, new hires down the road, setting up what programs we actually want to invest in, what's really important, what's the mission of, of marketing right now, and how is that going to evolve? There's a lot, it's a lot of writing, right. honestly. Like that's the biggest thing. The, the more that we can write, the better that we're going to perform over time. Because even if we write things that are bad ideas, at least they're out there and we can start editing and finding the things that really do move the needle. But you can't, if you keep it all in your mind or keep it all in a zoom meeting without writing it down, it all gets lost instead of just like needing to edit out some things that do need to get lost. So that's, that's been huge. 
Um, outside of that, we're a content creation company too. Like we, we got to, we have to make content everywhere. And so getting community set up across the board is massively important for us. I know that that may not be a priority for some other companies. I think it probably should be though. Uh, not to say that like the way copy does things is hundred percent, the only way to do it. That's absolutely not true, but we're like Paul's mentioned multiple times in this podcast, we're looking to be at the edge of technology, which means that our marketing has to be too. We can't just be doing the old traditional way of marketing where we're just like seeking out PR and trying to get good, uh, you know, good quotes and build like world build partnerships. We're going to do PR. We're going to do all that stuff, but the people in this company are going to be interesting. And that's what's going to make the company interesting. Love that. So um, another question from um, that dude, Dennis, Dennis Lin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now we know which Dennis. Um, your biggest bill in public related mistake or screw up, what you have learned from that and how you grew from it. So I'll go both of you. Uh, Paul, you want to go first? I've not made any mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Another one-liner for, for this podcast episode. <laughs> That's Paul, the clip right there. Never been None. None. People will, no. will be confused if this is a blooper, bloopers rule, real or if this is the real podcast. No, I've not made any mistakes. I mean, maybe some like, no, I haven't made any mistakes. Uh, when, you're, when you're thinking about building public though, like if you're really committed to building in public, you have to show all of it. So it can't necessarily be a mistake, right? Like, if you, if you do something that doesn't work, it doesn't mean it's a mistake. It's like, you're building this in public to show both sides. And so um, for me, like at least there have been products that I put out that just totally flopped. I've mm. had some that have generated a few thousand dollars, like almost instantly on the gum, on Gumroad stuff that I've done. I've had a couple that I thought were dope and they flopped immediately. <laughs> like I thought that I was going to get tons of sales. I put it out. I did the same framework, same thing as I've done that, that had worked before crickets worse than crickets like it's like the crickets all got eaten <laughs> and there was just like nothing but pure silence out there and so that's happened and it's documented in my timeline too for sure so i have one more from um i did think about it more what is that i did i, I don't have any i just <laughs> want to let you know i did think about because i saw the question come in on twitter i'm like oh that's a good question and i'm like i i hope someone can like identify one but I'll be honest with you, like the one that would stand out is like, oh, well, you were, you know, you show people your revenue. So what if like you have a hiccup and your revenue falls? Um, well, I'm like, dude, the revenue would not be as high if I never reported it. So that's just a risk. I mean, there, uh, and then the other risk building in public is everybody sees what you're doing. Your competitors see what you're doing. If you're worried about competition, you shouldn't really start a company that way, especially in this market that we're in. Actually, I, I actually have a specific question on that, and, and I want to understand succinctly your view on it very briefly, because I have a yeah. couple more questions coming in. How does copyright AI view competition? I mean, we going into it, Chris and I were like, hey, we're going to have 100, 200, 300. 400 competitors are we ready to go <laughs> that was it it was like all right what are you gonna do all right so you need you need things that work that you can do that other people aren't as good at and so we knew okay if it's competition yeah they might clone the product 
maybe entirely, at least the early product before you can build and layer layer in technical complexity that makes everything better. So then you got you're a, you're about uh, distribution. So that's why we're all in on Twitter, right. like all in hundred percent. So when you go all in on one platform, it has a huge advantage, and and it's on us now to to really extract the maximum value out of those advantages. I think we've done an adequate job, um, but you know those advantages don't solve those big core business problems. You still have to build a company. You know you can't just make it sound and look like a startup. It actually has to work as a real business. Right, Blake. Um, I want to yeah. pop on that to you, and and I'm curious how you viewed competition before joining on Copy. Generally, your thesis around building public you're much more likely to be copied, which, you know, technically it's true, right? Because people can see what you're, you know, building on and they can simply clone because there's everybody's attention is here. Like, how do you sort of mentally wrestle with that? Or you don't, you know, you don't even care. Like Paul, just like say, I don't care. I, yeah, I think that competition is, is more of a traditional, like going after competitive analysis is more of a traditional marketing play than it is marketing in the new world. I think it's important to know what, what other people are doing to be able to see that. But I would never in a million years formulate my entire marketing strategy around what other people are doing. I want to be able to control the story and what we are doing and build something special. I don't think it's possible to build something special when you're looking behind your shoulder. I just don't. Um, so I'm, I'm keenly, I've been keenly aware of competitors and even, even like just when I'm doing consulting for myself, who are the other people out there that are offering the same thing? But I'm more likely to try to make friends with those people than try to ever publicly combat them or copy what they're doing because relationship building is the name of the game. So the more that we can build relationships with people, uh, whether that's competitors even um, or, or just anybody else, I think that bodes a lot better for, for a company than saying like, okay, copy whatever.com is copying us and they want to um, we, you know, we need to check out what they're doing. Like, yeah, we can be aware of it, but what's going to move the needle really? Is it going to be co copying somebody else's, somebody else's features, worrying about other people copying our features, or are we going to take it to the next level? Do we have the right team? Do we have what we need infrastructurally to go forward? That's what I value much more. Gotcha. All right. So, um, one more question. Um, what was one of the most important things you had to unlearn? um from college and going through your first couple of jobs that got you where you are paul i didn't learn much in college <laughs> so that was easy so you yeah didn't have, you, didn't, you didn't have to unlearn <laughs> a lot because no honestly I, I had a degree in business economics and accounting business administration so all the economics was very useful like makes sense it's a worldview it explains incentives and how things work and how that machine's put together on the accounting side. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to become a CPA, which I did become a CPA. Um, we didn't even learn like QuickBooks. So like how, how are you going to graduate someone with a degree in accounting when you never taught them how to use QuickBooks or any accounting software for that matter. And then the second thing was in marketing, literally never talked about like how to use Facebook ads, Google ads, anything. And I'm like, man, this is so stupid. Like no one, people are going to graduate and not know how to, the first thing about starting a business. So I kind of knew at the time, okay, this is not really going to get me 
anywhere. And this was, that was back in 2009 when I graduated. So I spent three years in, or uh, two years in public accounting, three years at a hedge fund as a CFO, three years at a startup, and then four years at a venture capital firm. Um, before I felt like, all right, now I actually have, I feel like I'm reasonably in a good position, like to take this next step. Um, but yeah, no, didn't have to unlearn anything because I, I kind of knew what it was even at the time. Like, okay, this is something people do at this point in human history. We're still doing this. It's very expensive. So I graduated in three years instead of staying four and doing a master's, which was great. But I think at the end of the day, like just the amount of content Blake's putting out there, like you want to learn marketing, YouTube and some podcasts will get you up to speed really, really quickly. All of the right people. Mm -hmm. So um, Blake, well, is there something that you had to learn from college? Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit more naive in college than than Paul. Like, I didn't know. Anything. I was cynical, man. Yeah, maybe you're. Maybe so. Maybe so. So I I went in like I had no clue what I wanted to do. I was actually I was two years behind because I was a I was a missionary in France for two years at right after high school. So everybody else is going off to college. I'm doing that for two years, and then I go to college after. So I'm going. I'm an old man when I start college at 21, and then. I had no clue what I wanted to do. I started working in SEO. And then that's when I really started having my marketing courses kind of at that same time. And so I get into these more advanced marketing classes and they'd be talking about this great new fad called search engine optimization. That's like how they'd say it every single time, optimization. And the things that they would teach were just so ridiculously irrelevant and not close to what actual good SEO was. And that was kind of a a wake up call like, oh, okay. So these people don't know anything about the practical side of what I'm about to face in this, in this world with my career. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of had to unlearn just blindly trusting organizations um, like college. I went in just blindly trusting because everybody in my life was telling me you have to get a degree or else, but they never finished that sentence. Mm. They never said, or else what <laughs> they just said, or else. And I learned, oh, that, that doesn't even exist. There's no or else. Like there are a lot of viable options. Like you think Barraquette's going to go to college? That dude's going to be a billionaire before he goes to college. He's not going to need to go to college. Yeah, what are they going to teach him? <laughs> it's just <laughs> kind of a joke. Him. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> kind of a joke. Shout out to Barraquette. If, if the folks who are listening uh, don't know who it is. Blake, you want to tell him? He's, he's what, 12-year-old? Yeah, he's just some 12-year-old kid that's way better than all of us at everything. <laughs> <laughs> including, yeah. including building in public so. oh my god he started he started learning to code six months ago and has launched like 10 projects on product hunt this year and it took his got it he just hit five thousand follows <laughs> his his build in public game is way better than me or blake yeah. like probably combined just yeah. the, his way yeah his way of engaging is like insane insane I, I can tell you what i was doing at 12 i was definitely not building in public i was mostly just worried about what what you know what grades to get and all that so one last question and i was trying to learn how to code and it was c plus plus and yeah. i bought this book this thick yeah the first thousand pages was on modules and it was totally abstract and yeah. i just i threw it away i threw the book yeah. away yeah i was i was gathering change in the couch cushion scope by, by hot pockets by myself at the store <laughs> That was 12. 
Good times, Blake. Good times. All right. So one last question. We'll wrap up. This this is coming from Glenn. Um, the Twitter handles at uh, Twitter has uh, the Flow Agency. I'd love to know from your esteemed guests what anxieties they had when they started billing in public, and how they addressed them. Please, I'll wait uh, for. Actually, let's do Paul, and then I'll wrap it up with Blake. Paul, Paul give us a real answer. You can't say no anxieties, unlearning nothing. <laughs> Give us a real look. Make something up at least. Right. No, make something up. No, look, when when you're on Twitter, like you join Twitter, you're literally just trying to get likes. So you'll you'll post whatever the hell you need to to get a like. So if it's posting like, hey, I got my first customer, hey, that's a tweet. We'll try it out. So there are a million tweets to get no engagement. And then you find something that does and you do more of it. So this is a this is definitely a positive feedback loop, especially for people building in public. So it's, it's, I think some people have gone on Twitter and done it and then they, they will leave. But what I'm trying to figure out is this core group that's doing it now, will they be consistent in doing it? Um, and will they be able to see results in it? So like even the, you know, the anxiety would come from being alone, like yeah. loneliness as a founder and just anxiety of doing it and you run into a problem you can't solve with this community, boom, you get all the answers you need. So if you say, I'm running into this issue, one founder said, um, you know, it's hard. There's some burnout. Like, what do I do? I'm not able to grow things as quickly. I'm shipping a lot, but it's not really working. Those are the core things that like your, your community can really help with. So what I'm hoping for is that the community attracts people like more knowledge, um, found like high level founder knowledge that I think is probably still missing so that mm -hmm. when someone has you know, a question like that, somebody can come in with some real insights to help them out rather than just like encouragement, which encouragement is fine, but it's not, that's not going to solve the problem. When you started building in public, what, oh, what were some anxieties you had and how to address them? Yeah, real quick here. Um, I, my anxieties weren't around like what I was going to say or how it was going to be perceived. My biggest anxiety always and to this day is I hope that as my account keeps growing, that my content doesn't start sucking more because when you get into like 10,000 follower range, which is where I'm, I'm narrowing in on that now. Um, everything kind of works a little bit for you when you get to a certain point, when you're just starting out, nothing works. And then when something does, it's like this aha moment and you keep grinding from there and figuring stuff out, you get to a certain point where everything kind of at least works enough for you not to be embarrassed by it. Um, that's dangerous to me. And I get anxious about like, I want to make sure that I have ways that I can still tell that this is valuable to people because the likes might not be a good metric for that anymore. That's, that's the big thing. But I found that if I'm still able to generate conversations, that's probably a, a fairly good way of knowing that I'm not, I'm not like hitting my, I haven't hit my peak yet. I'm, I'm still working up to that, but that, that would be the number one thing. The, the one takeaway I got from there is that clearly shots were fired, Paul, at you and me. Because we just passed 10k or whatever number, and then he's say, he's already indicating, in, insinuating that our content sucks. So, yeah, it does. whatever, Blake. <laughs> I got. <it. laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, it's dude. Yeah. I just got 2,600 likes on a post about naming a startup, like six yeah. rules. And but that post, I've given that. Can we address yes. that for a second? Says the yeah. guy who literally earlier in the podcast says, I don't care for likes. I don't look at likes. I don't look at tweets. <laughs> there we go. Well, you're talking about likes correlating with like content. 
this was actually a high quality content post because because I've actually delivered this to people one-on-one -on -one a lot. And it's a mistake founders fall into is this trap about what they name their company. So I was like, okay, here are the six rules. And then I try to like, you know, great names are worth millions. Everybody wants to like that tweet, right? But that got like 837,000 impressions. So people, I think they don't understand how far the reach can go on Twitter. Yeah. You That's know? another thing too. People don't understand like how many free impressions you can get just by pumping out like, you know, organic content. Appreciate you spending your time with me. And where can people uh, follow you or you know, <laughs> TikTok? <laughs> I'm on Tumblr and OnlyFans. <laughs> Oh my my OnlyFans is OnlyFans.com slash Hey Blake. <laughs> and I share all my, my deepest, darkest secrets oh my for, for my audience. But <laughs> where, where really though? Like where, where can people find you and Paul? Uh, I'm in Memphis. <laughs> just fire Paul. Just get him out of here. I'm just going to. I'm, I'm on Twitter at Hey Blake. Thank you. Follow yeah. me before you follow Paul. Who's I'm at Paul Yakubian, the Twitter I, handle. And that's, that's the only place I want you to find me. I don't want you to look at me on LinkedIn anywhere else. All don't, right. don't ping me on there at polycubian. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Copycats. Excited uh, for wrapping this up and we'll, I'll see you around on Slack or see you around on Twitter. All right. Sounds good. Bye. See you.